Uh, if you would, uh, you, if you have your handout, you guys can already see from that that uh, we are back in the book of Matthew. And so if you would join us in Matthew chapter 8 this morning, uh, the thought has occurred to me uh, that someone may be part of a church and their church has maybe not yet been able to set up a live stream and they will in the future and they're, they're just watching online with us. Uh, thank you for joining us. I would invite you uh, to, to join us in a study of the book of Matthew. We have uh, started back in chapter 1, verse 1, a little over a year ago, and we have made our way down to chapter 8, and we're going to continue that. Um, but I would also encourage you, if you fit that description, maybe you're like, okay, I'm just I'm checking in for the next little bit. Our church does not have this format. Uh, then you keep praying for your church, and you stay faithful and loyal. If you have a Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church, then you stay faithful and loyal to that. But if we can help you in the meantime, then we are very happy to do that as well. Uh, but be in prayer for your pastor and pastoral staff and deacons and elders and uh, what leadership you have there in your church. Uh, so just before we read our text this morning, uh, another thought occurred to me. This is a little on the humorous side. Finally on a day where I could in good conscience shake every hand of every attender at church, I can't shake any hand of any attender at church because of the restrictions and the encouragement that were put on. So all 14 of you know that are here, there's our family, know that, that in spirit I am shaking your hand today. Uh, but look with, with me if you would, Matthew chapter number 8. Uh, this week we're in verses 18 to 22. I will say... Monday, if you would have asked me, I would have thought I was going a little different direction, maybe taking a, a week break from this uh, book that we're studying. Uh, but then Tuesday morning, I felt like the Lord kind of brought us right back and said, stay on the course. So as of right now, I'm not planning on a coronavirus series. Uh, the Lord could do that. He can at any moment, if he wants to do that or for a single service. But along that line, last week... We preached on verses 14 to 17, and that is on the website. If you did not hear that, and you say, I need some unique encouragement, could I encourage you, go back and listen to that message, because it did finish some, particularly finish with some things that are very helpful uh, for this exact moment, and it, we didn't force it, it was in the text, and so I would point your attention uh, to last week's text. So this week, got your Bible handy, right? And so let's get ready to study the Word of God, as we normally do. Uh, here at Grace View. Look at verse number 18, Matthew 8. Now when Jesus, so let's go ahead and get in the text. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him. So picture that. I don't, I'm not even going to say that this is on the same day or evening of verses 1 through 17. I'm not going to re-preach all of those. Three miracles specifically have been lifted out and then others generically using the word many came and then all of them were healed physically they're at Peter's mother-in-law or Peter's house after he had healed his mother-in-law I don't know that verse 18 is still that setting it's probably on another occasion where a large crowd is gathered but watch verse 18 now when Jesus saw a crowd around him he gave orders to go over to the other side and so they're on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum. Christ sees a crowd and gives orders. We're going to go over and they're going to end up going over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And so right at the outset, I want to propose to you, the Bible does not just say Jesus gave orders to go to the other side. Something in verse 18, at the start of verse 18, prompts the second part of verse 18. And we're going to draw that out as, an, as its own point in just a moment. 
So Christ says we need to go give orders to go to the other side. Verse 19. And a scribe. So this is a teacher of the Bible of the Jews, the law, the prophets, uh, the poetical writings, what we call the Old Testament. This man perhaps is one who actually made handwritten copies, but he would have been a teacher himself. In fact, let's, I'm going I'm to kind of cheat and go ahead and have you look ahead at verse 21 because the Bible says another of the disciples. So here's what we have. We have three categories already. We have crowds. We have disciples, this, this scribe, and another, quote, disciple. And so there's those, and then in another chapter and a half, we're going to realize there's a special group that is called out that we will later call them apostles. These two men do not fit in the category of apostles, nor are they just the crowd. Follow that. Back to verse 19. So this man who teaches the Bible for a living, that's his calling, a scribe came up and said to him, to Jesus, watch what he says, teacher. He's a teacher, but he points to Jesus. No, you're the teacher. He said to him, to Jesus, now listen, teacher, I will follow you. I will follow you. Wherever you go, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, a strange answer, says to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, you can picture as Christ points to himself, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In my mind, as I'm hearing that, uh, not to harm the passage, in my mind, what I hear there is, I'll fo- teacher, I'll follow you anywhere you go. And it's as though the Lord says, oh, really? You need to know this. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head. And so that'll be our second point, those two verses now, verse 21. Another of the disciples, these are just followers of the Lord, another of the disciples said to him, this is not the apostles, but another disciple said to him, Lord, now let me pause and interject here. Luke chapter 9 gives us this same account, an expanded version. Luke points out, and this, this matters, The first man, the scribe, volunteers to follow Jesus. This second man, Jesus actually tells him, you follow me. So the scribe volunteers to follow. Jesus says, you need to know this. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he tells another man, you follow me. And you don't actually see that the way Matthew puts it. But Jesus commands him, follow me. Verse 21 again. So with that background, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Again, without harming the passage, can I tell you how I hear that in my mind? Lord, follow me. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, it's as though he's saying, no, follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. So i got to tell you, this is a fairly difficult and even offensive passage uh, to those of us uh, who are thinking already and like, is, this, is Christ really saying and calling for what I think he is? Uh, and he is. And we need to kind of look into this this morning. Would you notice three things out of our text? Look with me if you would. First of all, verse 18, notice the following. Jesus reacts strangely to a crowd. Jesus reacts strangely to a crowd. Uh, as we first approach this, you may 
you may, if you read this three or four times, think, okay, the heart of the passage is these two men and what Jesus, how he interacts with them. And therefore, we just kind of need to brush by verse 18 and hurry up and get to these other two sections of the passage. But I want to encourage you, do not blow by verse 18. Guys, listen, there are three dynamics that are relating to verse 18 that we need to evaluate and let affect our theology. And they're very important. I'm not going to just belabor the points, but there's something happening here in verse 18 that is undeniable. Notice three thoughts that relate to verse 18. Number one, Christ's blessings often attract crowds. Christ's blessings often attract. Notice I'm not saying often attracted a crowd like it was just back then. It happens today. As the Lord blesses the church and the church is able to be a blessing to its community and to society, well, often... It could be one person who's being a blessing and they will attract a crowd of some form. Or the Lord blesses the church. But I particularly want to focus on this setting. The blessings of Christ is attracting a crowd. Like what? What? Why are people following the Lord? I thought of four or five categories. Let me hit them quickly. Go through them in your mind. For some, it literally was physical needs. They have diseases. A loved one has a disease. They need food. What do they do? They're coming to Christ. Others, it's as simple as this. Curiosity over the sensational. Right? Jesus comes town three or four days. I can picture some folks getting word of this, seeing what he can do. They have jobs to do in the morning. By midday, hey, work's done. Do you want to go see if Christ is still in town? Come on, family. He shouldn't be hard to find. And curiosity for the sensational. Others, it's literally a craving for glamour. This man, this Jesus seems to be going somewhere, and if he is, I want to know him, and I want to make sure he knows me. I want to be close to him. And so some are in it for the glamour. Perhaps Judas Iscariot is one of those. But then there's a whole other group, and they have just a legitimate hunger for God's truth. They recognize it in Jesus, and so they're following Christ for a good legitimate reason. Here's my point. For whatever of these reasons... Wherever Jesus went, it didn't take long for a crowd to follow. Number two, second thought under this point. Not only did his blessings often attract a crowd, number two, Christ's purpose was not to draw a crowd. Now that I want to key on. His purpose, let this sink in, let this affect our thinking. Christ's purpose, it's in the text here. His purpose is not to just draw a crowd. Now follow me. They're on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to go east. And I have no doubt that Jesus knows there's ministry to do over there. I have no doubt that Jesus wants some time to invest in his closest followers, and they will become the apostles, and he needs to train them. I understand that. He knows that. But verse 18, what that means is the first part of verse 18 actually influences the second part. So look at it again. There's something in when Jesus saw the crowd That prompts him. So it's not just the work to be done over here and time with the disciples. He sees the crowd and his reaction is, we need to leave. That is strange. Uh, If he had a PR director or a PR agent, they'd be saying, what are you doing? Now's the time to stay. And he's like, we've got to go. Now, here's the thing. This isn't the only occasion. There are multiple times in the New Testament where there's crowds around Jesus. And his response is to flee from the crowd. Hold your spot. We're going to be right back here in a minute. Go with me if you would. John chapter 6. 
Go over to John chapter 6 for a moment. Follow me there. Got your copy of the Bible. A couple of verses will be on the screen. Here's the scene. In fact, I'm going to refer to a lot of, of John 6 in here, here in a moment. Here's the scene. Very famous account. Matthew will end up covering it. Jesus feeds a crowd. You say, I wonder what size these crowd. What does it mean, crowd? I can't say for all of them, but on this occasion in John 6, a different scene from Matthew 8, there are at least 5,000 males, meaning 5,000 male adults. We don't know how many women, how many children. Jesus feeds them all with a little boy's lunch. Little boy, two fish, five little small, two little sardine-sized fish, five little bitty loaves. Christ takes that and, see, you know, when is the last time you had a sit-down meal with 20,000 people? That's what Jesus does. Now look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign, this is a sign from God, what Christ is able to do. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, so word is starting to chatter. And here's what they say. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And guess what? They were right. They're, they're saying to themselves, this is the prophet that, that Moses spoke about in the book of Deuteronomy. This has to be him. And he is. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus stood and said, it's about time you realize who I am. No, he doesn't. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself. Lord, where, where are you going? There's a huge crowd. Right, where are you going? I'm going to go get by myself. Guys, I don't know about you, that sounds like Matthew chapter 8. Same type thing. Back to Matthew 8 verse 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. It's time to leave. That is totally strange to us. Why? Let me repeat. Let's put this in our thinking and our understanding. Christ's goal was never to just draw a large crowd of people who in that day, frankly, were looking for a powerful political leader who's going to overthrow Rome. That is not what Christ, Christ... Listen to me. Christ would rather have a few wholehearted disciples than have a crowd of half-hearted followers. He wants a few, fewer wholehearted, bought-out, surrendered, committed followers of him than to have a multitude of half-hearted followers. And so the Lord just leaves the crowd. Now, how does that affect us today, right? So in this setting, they're looking for a political leader, and they're following Christ, hoping that's what he is. He knows I have other ministry to do. He knows he's on a limited amount of time. He's on God's timetable. He needs to train disciples. He knows, ultimately, here's the main thing, the reason he came. He has a predestined date with a cross in which he's going to pay for the whole world's sin, and he's not going to be sidetracked by a group of people who are just in it for themselves, I want to take a moment and let's apply this to our minds. I'm not making this up, guys. There are many people in Christianity and involved in church work and ministerial work who have wrong thinking, and here's how they think. They make an assumption that a large crowd automatically indicates successful ministry. Watch out for that thought. Don't let yourself just assume. Hey, large crowd, they must be doing something right. That doesn't automatically mean they have a lot of people. They must be doing something right. 
There are large churches and large ministries that are very spiritually healthy, doing great things for the Lord. And there are large churches with many people in attendance who are not doing anything hardly for God. There are small churches with just a few attenders who are very spiritually healthy, doing great things for God. And there are small churches who have just a few people who attend who are heretical and not doing anything for God. So we cannot go by the numbers. Be careful because wrong thinking on that point often leads to a wrong mentality of what the church's goal is. We'll fall into this trap. The goal of the church is to do whatever it takes to bring them in. And once we do whatever it takes to bring them in, then we need to do whatever it takes to keep them. And then that leads to one thing and another. Again, it can lead to crazy activity, and it can lead to a neglect of proper activity. Here's what I mean. There are some teachers and preachers and pastors and leaders of various kinds of ministry. Guys, they know that the Bible teaches a certain calling from God. God is seeking a certain level of activity, a specific activity, a specific demand to be carried out in our lives. But listen to me, they will not preach on it. They will not teach on it. Let me give you an example. Many will teach and preach on the leper and the centurion's servant being healed and Peter's mother-in-law being healed. But when they get down to verses 19, 20, 21, and 22, they're not going to preach on this difficult section of Scripture because it's just not palatable. People don't like that. People will leave the ministry. I'll go further than that. There are people who in their heart, they know not just standards and calling, They know doctrine that the Bible clearly teaches. They know it's in there. They will not preach on it. And here's why. Because it's not logical. Again, it's going to be offensive to people or it's going to paint God in a negative light. And we're just going going to skip those parts because they're afraid people will leave. That's a wrong mentality. So Christ's blessings often attract. His purpose was not to draw in a crowd. But notice very quickly. Christ's message often and usually diminishes a crowd. I said John chapter 6. I can't go back and re-preach and read through all of John chapter 6. I want to encourage you. Get a moment. You say, I don't know if that really teaches that. Go behind me and read John chapter 6. It's a lengthy chapter, and here's what you'll find. Jesus is going to preach a message. Again, 5,000 males have just been fed. There's this great miracle. Jesus is going to, in essence, escape from the crowd. He's going to go to another side of the Sea of Galilee. Read it in your own time. These people will find out where Jesus is. They will walk around and and go to the other side where he's at. They will find him, and they're going to rebuke him for leaving them. What are you doing? And so I want you to picture, if you've ever been in the Bon Secours Arena in Greenville, I want you to picture that arena maxed out to capacity These people are all ready to supposedly listen to Jesus. And then he gives the following message. Here's what Christ says, in essence, three or four points. Here's what he says. You guys are only following me at the beginning because you wanted to see a miracle. You're in it for yourself. You just want to see something sensational. I entertain you or whatever you can get from me. That's the only reason you started following me. Number two, in spite of all you've seen me do, you still don't believe in me. He starts rebuking the crowd. 
Then he goes further and he says, the only reason you're following me now, the only reason you walked around the lake and followed me now, it's not for me. You want another handout. You want free food. I think every church has those folks that when we have dinner on the ground, that all of a sudden the same people who hardly ever come otherwise, they suddenly, suddenly show up on those weeks. That's what Christ is saying. That you're following me for the free food. You just want more free food. But then, as if that wasn't enough, he preaches a very difficult message. Check it out. Read in John 6. Christ gets up and starts saying how that he is the bread of life. But he goes further than that, and he says, because he's the bread, he's talking spiritually, but he doesn't make it really clear in John 6. He tells all these people, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have spiritual life and eternal life. And then he tops it off by saying, you need to come to me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Not literally, we know that now, but it was confusing to them. And he tops it all off by saying, though you need to come to me, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a very good PR. (laughs) What's the result? They left. The crowd left at the preaching of Jesus. So we're in Matthew 8, and i got to tell you, I read this, wow. That's a strange reaction from Christ. Number two this morning. We notice in verses 19 and 20 that Jesus warns of the cost they're involved in following him. Jesus warns of the cost they're involved in following him. Would you look with me, guys, this morning? So wherever you're at, uh, viewing the streaming or online, look again at verse number 19. So Jesus gives a command, we're going to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, This is a volunteer, so that is clear. This man on his own volition, I'm assuming, so let's kind of use our imagination, I'm not guaranteeing this, it appears that this man is close enough to hear Jesus say they're going to the other side. He wants to go. So here he is, he's been following, he knows Christ is leaving, and here in the excitement of the moment, the excitement of the crowd, in the visual of the miracles that Jesus has done in his powerful speech, he's heading somewhere else, I want to go too, and in fact, I'll follow you wherever you go. Guys, I kind of like this man. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's unusual for a scribe, the scribes and the Pharisees were usually against Jesus, this man is unusual in that regard. I love his attitude. You say, why do you like this guy? He has said what few Christians in our time have ever said. Here's what he said. I will follow you. In fact, I'll follow you wherever. This man is, this is bold. This is massive. I am ready to leave my former life behind. I am going to follow you wherever you go. Now, here's the thing. How much prior thought did this man give to those words before he made that claim? The response of Jesus to him in verse 20 apparently indicates he hadn't given enough. I would love to know what happened. Many read this and say the man just walked away. I don't know. In Luke 9, that goes to chapter 10, Jesus ends up sending out 72 followers. Maybe this man ends up getting sent out, one of the 72. Or maybe Jesus runs him off with his message in verse 20. Oh, really, you're going to follow me wherever I go? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. You need to understand that I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head down. You really going to follow me? Many of you are like me. We've had times, camp a special service, or a normal service where the Lord just spoke to us. And in that moment of emotion, we made bold claims to the Lord of what we would do. God, I will do, and we tell the Lord that. But guys, sometimes we make emotional claims, and it's just words. 
And Jesus checks this man, and he says, you need to count the cost. I used to coach basketball. I think I coached 15, 16 years. I think that means I had 15, 16 years of tryouts. I remember a year coaching JV. I think I had like 30 young boys come try out, and I'm going to keep 12. Can I put it this way? Hey, everybody wants on the team until the sprints start and the conditioning starts. And I've actually had young, young guys, 7th, 8th graders, who after I blow the whistle next group, and we just run and run and run and run, and I've seen some just run right on out the door up to mama's car. <laughs> like, okay. They thought they wanted to be. Hey, if you have ever been to Paris Island to see a Marine Corps graduation, I've been to one. Saw my cousin back when I was young. I'm telling you, I left that island. I'm joining the Marine Corps. Man, I can't wait. I want a haircut. I want one of those uniform guys. It comes with a price tag. It comes with a three-month previous price tag. It comes with a follow-up four-year price tag. You don't just get a uniform and a haircut and get to parade out on the deck and, and, and get you know people applaud for you. That's the easy part. Guys, listen to me. In the upper room on the night as the Lord was going to be betrayed, in the comfort of the Last Supper, Peter, he fully meant it. Peter said, Lord, I'll go to prison for you. I will even die for you. But just a few hours, just hours later, he will deny that he even knows the Lord. And here we have a man. I'll follow you. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Will you really? You need to count the cost. Are you guys now starting to see verse 19 and 20 is actually related back to verse number 18? Rather than just saying, oh, that's wonderful, hop in the boat and let's go, Jesus checks him. And he says, you need to understand some things. You need to count the cost. Write this down. Verse 20 reveals to us that Christ is in no hurry to enlist a crowd of soft followers. He's just not in a hurry to enlist a crowd of soft followers. In fact, Bishop J.C. Ryle gives us the following quote. I'm going to probably read it twice because I know some of you are writing a note even now, but I'm going to go ahead and begin what Ryle writes in his commentary of this passage. Ryle said, now catch it, nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer, and I put in quotes, I put in quotes, every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession. Read it again. He says, Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who's willing to make a little profession. You willing to make... Would you raise your hand if you know... And they raise their hand. Are you willing to come forward and shake the pastor's hand? Are you willing to sign a card? Well, then come on in. Guys, y'all know this. Being a member of a local church like Graceview has nothing to do... It does not help any any iota, a person to go to heaven, right? If it did, we would be signing up as many as we possibly could. For that reason, we're probably, I don't know of any other church that's as slow to bring in new members as Graceview is. We're supposed to have a new members class beginning next week. We're obviously going to have to reschedule that. You say, Jeff, you guys are painfully slow. Why? You know you have so many people come through and a lot of people come in and they're kind of excited after a service or two. Why don't you just stand down front and have everybody, if you're interested in joining the church, come on down. Hey, what's your name today? All in favor? All right, write their name. Guys, the reason we don't do that is that we have no interest in, in adding a long list of names to a role of people who are just going to be unfaithful. Have no interest in that. But I want to be the church that has more people in attendance on a normal Sunday, not today, than we do actually on our list of names. Do y'all know that most churches are flipped upside down? They have many, many, many names, and a small fraction actually attends the church. We're not looking for just names. 
And that's what Christ does as well. I thought about our county. And in our county, we have apparently about 180,000 people. A lot of Christians. I wonder how many Christians in Anderson County, they hear stories about persecution around the world and we see headlines and we can put two and two together. You with me? We know where things are headed and we think these thoughts, Christians think these thoughts, I would go to jail for my faith. I think I'll go to jail. We hear about martyrs and we think, I think I would die for the cause of Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that's talk. So, Jeff, what would you do? I can't tell you what I would do. I can hope what I would do. I'm not going to say what I would do. Here's the thing. We can fancy in our mind what we will or will not do if Christ asks of us. But I want to tell you, the best indicator, I think I would go to jail for the cause of Christ if needed. I would die for Christ. Guys, write it down on your handout. The best indicator of what we will or will not do if Christ asks is what we are presently doing. What is our present level of obedience to what he's already revealed for us? Rather than doing hypothetical what we would do if Christ wanted it, check yourself, what, ha- what am I doing with what the Bible has already revealed for me to do? And man, we could make quite a list there. Let me offer a few for you and I to evaluate ourselves this morning. I would do this, I would do that for the Lord. All right, great. What is your present level of obedience on such a things as this? The Bible teaches that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, He wants you to make your faith public. Make it known. How? Not just on a Sunday morning when the lights are low and every head is bowed and you're willing to raise your hand sheepishly. Not just at the plant, when someone asks you, you soften your voice and admit you're a Christian. No, literally, Christ says, make your faith known in public, right out of the gate. How? With your words, with your life, with a baptism. It's like that's a public announcement. If we're not willing to do the basic things, then we need not wonder, I would do that for Christ. Don't fool yourself. The Bible talks about assembling with God's people. I realize we're in an unusual situation this morning. Do we just do the basics? Are we able-bodied? Can we, or do we just make a habit of, I think I'm going to always do the online version. I'm just going to watch the stream. All that is kind of comfortable. I'm still in my pajamas, still drinking my own coffee. I'm over here. I'm petting the dog or whatever. Guys, listen. We're to assemble together. This is a, a demand of Christ. If we can't do the basics, we need not fool ourselves that we would do more than that. Another, it was in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, have a daily time of prayer. Get into the prayer closet. Shut the door. It doesn't have to be a literal closet. Get a time where you talk with the Lord. Do you have regular times in the Word of God? Here's a big one. Do you financially support the Word of God? Are you laying up treasures in heaven? Or are you letting anxiety hold you back? When we have sin in our life, and the, and the Bible exposes that it is sin, do we deal with that? This morning, is somebody filled with unforgiveness, filled with bitterness, filled with anger, filled with lust? And, and, and again, the Sermon on the Mount pointed all of those things out. Do we just kind of cover that up and fancy our, our mind thinking, oh, I would do great things for Christ, but we won't do the basic things? Count the cost. I want to say something here that is important. I know 
that be, being saved, guys, I'm talking about the moment of salvation. That is, strangely, I don't have time to explain, it is, it is simultaneously the hardest thing to do, but it's the easiest thing to do. And you're like, Jeff, what are you talking about? In a sense, because of our religion and our natural way of thinking, it's the hardest thing to do. But once you truly understand how to become a Christian, I, I mean this, it is the easiest thing to do in the world. And somebody may hear that and say, that guy's preaching easy believism. Guys, the way to get saved is stop trying to save yourself. That's how you get saved. Stop trying to save yourself and just trust what Jesus has already done and just receive his salvation. It's the easiest thing in the world. Just trust Christ. But listen to me. If you do that, so getting saved, easiest thing in the world. Once you are saved, your life will change. Your life will change. How? Many ways. I'm going to give you one example. Write this down. I'm reading in the book of Hebrews in my devotions this week. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm not going to turn there and read. Do you know what the Bible teaches? When you and I become a Christian by putting our faith in Christ, we become literally the children of God. And here's one of the ways that our life changes. The Bible teaches, Hebrews 12 and other places, that God adopts us because he has adopted us as his spiritual children. God will discipline his children much more strictly than he does the world around us. God's going to discipline. I sense the discipline of the Lord in my life more than he disciplines the rest of the world. I have two kids. They're at an age, they haven't received a spanking in years, Right? Not that they haven't deserved it, just they're a little bit, and no, I'm kidding. They're great kids. I had to give them a few spankings through the years. Not a lot, but a few. I didn't go around spanking other people's kids. I had to spank my kids a few times. Guys, here's my point. The special, you say God so loved the world. I know God loves the world, but God has a special love for Christians. He loves us so much, he's not going to let us wallow in sin and just get by with sin that other people appear to be getting by with. For a period of time, the Lord will not do that. And we need to know, hey, you're going to be a Christian? Well, expect your life. You don't have to change your life to become a Christian, but you need to know once you become a Christian, God is going to change your life from the inside out. Now, one more time, would you look back at verse 20? Look at verse 20. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the, say that phrase, son of man. That's a whole sermon. I think this is the first time this has come up in the book of Matthew. Son of man. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of debate, and there's a lot in this one little phrase, but if you want to write this down, this was Jesus' favorite self-designation. We're going to see it come up over and over again. I think this is the first time in Matthew, as Jesus refers to himself more than any other thing other than I or me, you're going to hear Christ use this phrase, son of man. And it actually is bringing in, and we hear that and say, oh, he's talking about his humanity. That is certainly part of it. But that's not all of it. He's pulling from Daniel chapter 7, and he's actually linking that in for two ideas. And they're balanced in this title, son of man. Favorite self-designation self of Christ. Here's what it means. He's pulling in that he is the divine Messiah. Jesus is saying, I am the divine Messiah, Daniel chapter 7. But it also brings in that he is the suffering servant, the human suffering servant. So it is pointing to his humanity. Now, what does that have to do with this man who's volunteered to follow him wherever he goes? Follow. I'll follow you wherever you go, Lord. In essence, it's as though Christ says, oh, really? Here's what you need to know. Foxes, you know why foxes have holes? Because they need an escape from the world. 
and they need a place that is their own, and they need a place to rest. Do you know why birds of the air have nests? Because they need a place to feel secure and escape everything, and that they're going to sleep, and they're going to have that. They can't fly and forage for food all the time. They have nests. Foxes have holes. Birds have have nests. But the Son of Man, He does not have this. Guys, I'm going to propose what Christ is telling us is, we're going to learn, yes, he's fully God and omnipotent and, and unchanging and thus never gets tired as God. But while on earth for these 33 years, he laid aside the independent use of his attributes. He laid aside his glory, laid aside his rights. And what's the result? What he's saying is days of ministry like verses 1 through 17 cause him to be fatigued. And so what he's saying is, I need rest. But when I need rest, I don't have a home that I can just go to and rest in. He's admitting, I'm a man. I need rest. And if you're going to follow me, there's some things you need to understand. So guys, last little thoughts on verse 20 before we hit point number three this morning. Chew this. Man, this is its own message. Hear it. No one has ever lived as perfectly in the very center of the moral, revealed, perfect will of God as did Jesus. And then I know in our mind, there's a lot of preachers going around and they would tell us that if you live a good godly life and if you're a Christian and you're the child of God, you should expect to be healthy and wealthy. If you'll live right, God will make you healthy and God will make you wealthy. And if those things aren't happening in your life, something's wrong on your end. That doesn't stack up with what we see in the life of Christ. No one has ever lived as perfectly in the center of God's will, and yet God's will for him was that he not even have a home to call his own. I'm not harming the passage, but let's just think for a moment. I'm quite certain that when Jesus was growing up in Nazareth under Joseph and Mary, he had a house. And as Joseph apparently has passed away, Jesus taking care of his mother, I am quite confident that in Nazareth, Continuing the family business, perhaps, as a carpenter, Jesus had a house. But there hits a point around age 30 that he is going to leave that house behind. So this is, not, this is what he's talking about here. Yes, there are a, a few places in his ministry that when he's in that town, he has a lodging place. We know that when he's in Capernaum, apparently he stays at Peter's house, verse number 14. When he's down near Jerusalem, he stays out in a little town just very out, outside the city of Jerusalem with Lazarus and Martha and Mary in a little town called Bethany. So there are some places he has a lodging place because he has connections, but they're not his own. What he's telling this man is, my ministry is itinerant. I'm on the move. And so are you sure? We're getting ready to head to a whole section east of, east of the Sea of Galilee, and I don't have connections there, and the money is tight. We don't just roll into town, hit the Holiday Inn, and say, hey, I need seven rooms for the next four nights. Money's tight. And because of the finances were, were, were thin, What the impression we get from the New Testament is the Lord and his followers had to be tough and rugged men, physically tough and rugged, emotionally and mentally. Why? We're spending the night under the stars. Are you sure you want to sign up for this? You're going to follow me wherever I go? Before we get to the third point, can I put it this way? So Jeff, what does that mean for us? Guys, this was God's will for his one and only son, that he live as a poor person. And Jesus wants this man to know, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to live as a poor person. That's God's will. And he was perfectly in the center of God's will. So, I have to be honest. 
God's will for us may be that we always have a home, that we always have a house. You may have a nice house, and that may be God's will. But what the Lord is telling us, you need to count the cost. If you're going to follow him, it could be God's will that you not have a house, that you leave a house. You say, God would never. He could. We're not promised. And he wants us to be willing to follow at all costs. Number three, this morning, write this down. Verses 21 and 22, what do we find? Jesus calls for unconditional discipleship. Jesus calls for unconditional, we could say unconditional obedience, unconditional discipleship. Look, if you would, verse number 21 again. Another of the disciples. So again, Luke says Jesus tells him, commands him to follow him. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Uh, guys, this is a, so your handout has some unusual wording. I didn't have room to type all of the nice transitional thoughts for this to make sense six, month, six months from now if you were to go back and look at it. So what I want to do is encourage you to really try to log this mentally. Verse 21 is a hard verse. You say, it doesn't seem that hard. It seems pretty simple. The experts of this passage that have studied it have proposed multiple, and I'm going to call them viable interpretations. There's more than three on your handout. I'm going to offer three. So the hard part for me this morning is, do I just throw out three and kind of emphasize one? I'm not going to take that approach. I'm going to throw out three, and I'm going to treat each one in my mind as though that is the proper interpretation of what verse 21 means. And so I'm going to do that. You say, Jeff, you can't have three interpretations. It can't mean all three. Here's the thought. The overarching dynamic, the ultimate conclusion of all three ways of looking at verse 21 all reach the same conclusions. What is it? That Jesus is calling for unconditional discipleship. No matter which view, you say, so what are these three views? Write these down. Number one, this could mean that this, verse 21, he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This could be a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech, which means that this man intends to follow the Lord. Jesus just said, follow me. He intends to follow the Lord, but what he means by let me bury my father, it's not that his father has actually died or even at the point of death. What he's saying is when my father dies, when my father finally dies, I stand to gain an inheritance. You say, that's, that's nowhere in the text. Guys, literally, there is ancient proof for this phrase being used that way. I need to bury my father. In other words, I'm going to do something later after I receive my inheritance. And so it is a very strong possibility that that is what this man means. I stand to gain it. So here's, so let's apply this. This man, if this is the proper interpretation, and I'm just going to deal with it as it is, then what this man is saying is, Lord, I intend to follow you, but to me it makes sense for me to pause, to wait a little while. Because if I wait, I'm going to get this windfall. And I, maybe it's enough if I invest it, then I can live off the interest and, and I can be financially secure. I can self-support my ministry. This makes total sense. Or I'll just chip away and use a little bit and it'll last me a long, long time. It's smart if I just wait to follow you. So what's the problem with that view of thinking? The problem is Jesus totally blows it out of the water 
with verse number 22. He says, now follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, the thought that says, I'll follow you, Lord, I'll obey when it's a good time. Right now is not a good time. Later should be a better time. I'll do it then. No, not later, not on your terms. Do it now. Oh, but it makes financial sense. All right. So let's apply this. If this is the intention of this man, and it has to do with inheritance, then focus for a moment on verse 22. What does that mean? Jesus says to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. So guys, I want to propose to you that if we were to look at all the scripture, here's what we learn. Money is important. Money is important. The Bible teaches that if you have any money as a Christian, you are a steward of God's resources. You say, I don't have a lot. You're a steward of God's resources. You say, I have a whole lot. You're a steward, and that means you're going to give an answer to God for what you have done with the resources he's given to you. So what verse 22 means is, here it is, though money is important, only spiritually dead people, only spirit, not living people spiritually, not Christians, only spiritually dead people need to be consumed with it. Look again at verse 22. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let me get my inheritance. No, follow me. You leave the dead. You leave the spiritually dead people who are consumed with money and all of it. You leave them to bury their own. You let them wait until they get. You let them be consumed with the inheritance. You follow me. What does that mean? If I take that and I look at verse 22, here's here's all I can conclude. Jesus is saying, I don't want second place to anything. I don't want second place to your ideas. When you know there's a clear call on your life, a specific action that the Lord is calling for, then you don't start logicizing and figuring out and rationalizing when is the best time to follow through with the Lord's command. Just do it. Again, if you have a handout, you want to write the following. Money, here's our lesson. Money is never to be a factor to determine, am I going to obey the call of God on my life? Well, I need to think through financially. No. What the Lord is saying is, I don't want my demands to be run through the grid of your logic to decide when and if you're going to obey, because we cannot trust our logic. I know some of you are writing, but I I, kind of wish I had had it written the way I'm getting ready to say, that same idea that I just gave you. So the Lord gives a command. For this man, it was a verbal command to specifically follow him around to the other side of the lake. That was his specific. It's not your command. You're not living there. The Lord is not telling you to go to another side of the lake physically, get in a boat, and follow him. But this man was told that. Whatever the command of Christ, here's a thought the Lord gave me. The financial ramifications of the demands of Christ on us should never affect our obedience to them. I know that sounds simple, but we need to put that in. That's the lesson here. So we have the demand of Christ, and then we want to think the financial ramifications of that. Well, Jeff, isn't that the point of verse 19 and 20? We need to count the cost. True. God gives a command. We need to count the cost, but we always need to conclude, I'm going to obey you no matter what the financial ramifications, rather than, well, the financial ramifications look to be too costly. If I do that, then I'm not going to have these things, so I'm not going to obey. Not an option for the Lord. Before I give you the second thought, and I, I debated, do I even do this? But I'm going to. 
and I'm, I'm prominent, the Lord knows my heart, I'm not trying to play on a difficult situation. With all that's going on with the COVID-19 virus, y'all know as well as I do, a month ago our economy was strong, unemployment was low, and I hear what they're telling us. Our market, stock market has plummeted, uh, unemployment is rising, and it is going to rise, and people are going to have financial difficulties, and we don't even know the full remit. It's going to hit me. It's going to hit almost all of us. But what the point here this morning is, unfortunately, some who've made a habit of giving to the Lord, because that's a principle and a command of Scripture, some are going to look at that and say, I'm making less money than I did before, and I can't afford to give. Well, let me agree with you on something. That sounds logical, but it's not biblical. It sounds logical, but it's not obedient. Christ is calling for unconditional. You say, but I have less, right? The amount you give, the proportion of what you give may be less if you're bringing in less. But I know, I know there are many folks who are coming to our church and their attitude, I'm going to give to the Lord the same as always. Whether I have less or more coming in, that's not going to change. But I'm fearful of some that's going to let logic and reason and fear cause them to withhold giving to the Lord cheerfully a portion as he gives to them. Be careful for that. Quickly, the second view of verse 21 is the following. This man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This could also be a little bit of a figure of speech. And here's what it points to. This is literally a viable possibility. This man may be saying it's not that his father has actually died and it has nothing to do with with an inheritance. It could mean this. I have an aged father. I have an elderly aged father and he needs physical care. And you've just asked me to leave where I am and to follow you. I need to go take care of my father. And when that's finished, when I'm done, whenever, however long that happens, then I will come. See, it, see the difference? It's not about money with this man. And his father's not actually died. And he may not even be at the point of death, or maybe he is. But maybe there's this, this dynamic that he needs my help. It's kind of my responsibility. And so, Jesus, you've just given me, this, given me this new, specific, verbal demand to follow you geographically to this other side of the lake. Here's, here's what's happening. This man has now two conflicting duties before God. He knows the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. He has an aged father. Don't know what happens to the mother, but if this is what this phrase means, he has an aged father, he feels responsibility. Some 30-some years after this event, the book of Ephesians is going to tell us, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good, this is right, and then it's going to say, honor your father and your mother, reiterating. It's as though this man perhaps is saying, I have this, I know the Bible says in the fifth commandment, and then I have your new fresh command as the son of God, so you're God in, in the flesh telling me to do this. I have, I have Old Testament and soon to be written New Testament telling me I have this responsibility, I have conflicting, and, and it's as though he thinks in his mind, surely Jesus, you understand if I have to wait a while to do what you've asked me because I have this other responsibility. It's as though he's wrestling with the priority. I have these Two things. Are they competing? Are they conflicting? I can't really do that one. So what's his dilemma? It's as though he's thinking, can't I just put other ministry for you on the back burner for a little while to take care of this? When I fulfill this obligation, then can I fulfill what you've asked of me? If that be the case, Christ, in his answer in verse 22, 
blows right by the cultural thinking and the normal way of thinking. And he says, no, you cannot wait. And then he says, let leave the dead to bury their own dead. I don't know fully what that means. There's lots of ways you could look at that. Maybe what the Lord is saying is, yes, you have that responsibility. Someone else can watch your father. I just gave you a specific command to go to the other side. And Luke says his job specifically is to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So that is yours. Maybe he's saying another family member who does not have this specific claim, their job is to fulfill that. You need to see that. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Read it in Luke and you'll see it there. It's in chapter 9 at the very end. One thing I'm learning is however you interpret this passage, no matter what age we live in, Jesus just destroys the common way of thinking. This is a very offensive passage. And, of course, the third way of looking at it, number three, is literally. This man's just lost his father in death. Let that sink in. The man has just lost his father, and Jesus tells him, follow me. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Follow me right now. And the man says, can I first go and bury my father? So I'm going to read between the lines just a little. It doesn't say, but apparently this man must have been the oldest, only child or the oldest in his family. And so, listen, the culture expected of him to see to it, if his father had just died, see to it that you give your parent a proper burial. That is your job. The the, the commentaries also tell us that at that time, Jews buried their loved ones who had just died within the first 24 hours. So within 24 hours, that's when the burial takes place, and Jesus is saying, you follow me right now. Can I just bury my father? No, you follow me right now. Let the dead bury the dead. To that view, R.T. France writes the following. So if this is what's happening, and we just say this is just, hey, let's take it for what it is. It's literal. By the way, a lot of commentaries don't want to take this passage literally because they don't like the light that it puts Jesus in. Here's a man who's just lost his father, and Jesus won't even let him go bury his father. R.T. France writes the following. Quote, if his filial duties, his family duties, prevented him from joining the group in the boat just now, He could catch up with Jesus as soon as his responsibilities had been discharged. Well, then that makes sense. That's what the man's asking for. I I kind of, again, let me read that again. If his filial or family duties prevented him from joining the group in the boat just now, he could catch up with Jesus as soon as his responsibilities had been discharged. France even offers the word first. Let me first. He's he's implying, oh, I intend to follow you. I just, let me do this first, and then I'll be right on that. That sounds magnanimous. That's awesome. What a great spirit. He's not even going to take time to grieve and take weeks and months. I'm going to get right on that. I need, you know, the culture expects this of me. But Jesus says, no. You let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You let the spiritually dead bury your father. All right, Jeff, what's your opinion on this? My opinion, I'll tell you, is, man, that's strict. I'll go further. Man, that borderline's on unloving. That's, Lord, really? I mean, the man just wants to do the right thing. He's just lost. Lord, that's, that's, that's too strict. Now, that's my opinion. But then I back up and I look at the whole of the New Testament and I hear the demands of Christ over and over. And here's what I realize. 
This is what we need to get. Jesus saying, I will have second place to no one and to nothing. I will not have second place. Look, use your eyes. Look at verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 21. Look at, look at it. Lord, let me first. Do you see those four words? Lord, let me first. Take out the word let. Do you see it? Watch. Lord and me first don't go together, guys. You're the Lord. Now, me first. Hold. Am I the Lord? Yes, you're the Lord. Then get rid of me first. You do what I say. Can I tell you that in my mind I have wondered hypothetically, and I'm going to offer it to you. This is totally hypothetical. I have wondered if in this scene things had played a little different. And maybe in my mind I'm giving the Lord an out. I wonder if this man, when told by Jesus, hey, foxes of the air have, foxes, of, uh, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. So you need to think twice before what you say you're going to do and not do. Oh, by the way, you follow me right now. Had that man just stepped forward. Okay, Lord. All right, let's go. Hold up. What did they say to you a while ago? Oh, those two people? Yeah, what did they say? They said, my father just died. I'm sorry to hear that. Tell you what, you go give your father a proper burial and then you immediately get back with us. Yes, Lord. I am, that's fabricated. I wonder. Here's the problem. It's just hypothetical. We don't know because the man, here's what he did. He calculated. If the father literally just died, the man starts calculating and negotiating. And that's what we do today. We hear these commands of God and we see what the Bible clearly says and we start negotiating. That's just the way I am. That's, uh, that's in my family. We can't afford it. I don't have time. Uh, the need over here is great. And the Lord is saying, do this, do this. And we're like, later, 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 I'm gonna do this, I think. And God's like, no, stop it. I will not take second place. Jesus says, I'm the Lord or I'm not. And I am and you obey me. This is actually a very powerful passage and I realize this kind of gets in us and we get emotional when we're especially talking about family, close family. So very important. It's one of the last notes I think you have. It might even be the last note. Guys, do you know that if we went through all of the Bible, here's a major truth. You want to write it down. Scripture teaches that family responsibility is part of our discipleship. Family responsibility is actually part of our discipleship. We're going to be judged for this. We're going to be held accountable for our family responsibility. Scripture teaches that. That's undeniable. But here's what we learned this morning. Jesus teaches that even family must never compete with allegiance to him. Yes, family is part of our discipleship and we do have responsibilities and we're accountable for those but Jesus is saying even family must never compete with allegiance to him have you ever heard this have you ever heard this you ever heard someone say this well my spouse and my kids and my parents they are my ministry you ever heard that maybe somebody listening right now you've said that you ever heard this? Nothing is more important to me in all this world than my family. 
Guys, on the authority of the Word of God, I can tell you that is wrong doctrine, and it's actually rebellion against God. Nothing is more important. They are my ministry, as though it stops there. That's wrong theology, and that's rebellion against God. We live in a world, and it's not just unique to our day. It's been for the last 2,000 years. Most people choose now over later. Most people choose logic and reason and, and their own emotions and comfort over Christ's commands and following through with what the Lord calls for us and keeping a view on eternity. Most people choose now over eternity. But what the Lord is trying to tip us to do and command us to do, this is key, and this is, I'm kind of drawing down now. There are some special ones who have set an example for us that literally, listen to me, knowing that they're going to miss their family's births and the birthdays and the graduations and they're going to miss the weddings and they're even going to miss funerals. And I know nowadays we're blessed, man. We have technology and we can see things and we can hop on a plane and just delay it a little bit. I'll get there. And we live in an awesome day. But for the last 2,000 years, many people have heard the call of Christ in their life and they literally have sold the house, left the family, left the homeland and said, I'm going to another part of the world. I don't even know what it's like there. Why? Because God called me to do it. I have sensed a special call of the Lord and they just obeyed. I'm going to tell you this. They probably had a little hard life here, but they are very thankful for the eternal life and the version of eternal life that they're going to have. Their going did not save them, but their going earned them in the right spirit many great rewards, more so than those of us who like to play it safe. So my challenge is this. Don't look at Matthew 8, 18 to 22 and just think, man, that's a... That's a nice story, kind of an ancient Bible story about a couple of men and a trip around the Sea of Galilee. It has nothing to do with me. No, listen, the principles are timeless. You say, what are the principles? Count the cost. Jesus isn't all caught up in the crowd. He's after wholehearted, deeply committed disciples, not just half-hearted, would-be followers who make easy little professions. Count the cost and then ultimately surrender and commit to an unconditional, unconditional discipleship and obedience to the Lord. About a chapter and a half from now, the Lord's going to call the 12. Guys, they, at this point in history, they had, listen, they had no idea about the cross. They had no idea about the ministries they would have, the powerful effects of God, but also the difficult life they would experience in the persecution. At this point, they have no idea about they're going to be martyred and how they will die. All of the apostles will die a martyr's death except for John, and they tried to kill John. They don't know this at this point. My, here's what they do know. The Lord calls them, and they at the very beginning begin with total surrender. They begin with, with total surrender. What, they don't know what's coming, but they're all in at the very beginning. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, maybe like some who in a moment of emotion, I would do that if, if the Lord ever audibly calls me or if I sense a real, genuine, easy-to-discern prompting, then I think I would obey I close with this, Romans chapter 12. Got your Bible, flip over there. It'll be on the screen, but we don't even have a note. It's just Romans 12. You say, if I ever hear from the Lord, guys, you don't have to wait. 
You don't have to imagine what if. God's already called us. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Because we come from Him and we live through Him and we're going back to Him and all things are for His glory at the end of chapter 11, verse 36. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, God's Word says to us Christians, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present, make available, to present your bodies, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet, everything about you, literally your whole life. I appeal to you, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Holy, acceptable sacrifice. Present your bodies to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed. But that doesn't make sense. Do not be conformed to this world, this age, this way of thinking. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's talking about let the Word of God change the way you think. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing with a new mind, we're able to test. Test what? That you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he goes on and he says, use your spiritual gifts for the cause of Christ. So the message today is this. Guys, God may not require your home or mine. He has not up to this day. God may not require your health, but the Lord very, very well could say, if I get more glory by you being sick, are you in? If it took your house, are you in? If you had to live as a poor person for me, and I will get glory from that, are you in? If you had to lose your very life, are you in? These guys, the 12 that will follow the Lord, their attitude is, yes, we're fully in. Where are we at today? He said, Jeff, I don't know that God's good. He may not, but he's saying, I want it all put on the altar. And then you renew your mind and be busy about the basics of using your spiritual gifts to be a blessing and serve the church, the body of Christ, and the lost people around us. Would you do this? I know where you're at. It may be a little uncomfortable, but I am going to invite you. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? And those few of us that are here, close your eyes just for a moment and allow the Lord to speak to you. This is a difficult passage. What we have is two men who heard the clear, discernible, audible voice of God about literal physical movements and location. You say, well, Jeff, we don't have that. Guys, in the same way as they heard from God the Son audibly, we hear from God Almighty through His written word in the Bible. Neither is more whether Jesus' spoken word 2,000 years ago to that man or these written words of God in the Bible to us. Neither is more authoritative. Each is authoritative. And so this morning, just before we pray, I want to ask you, what's your attitude What's your approach? What's your response? That's key. What is your honest response when you hear a clear command from Christ? A clear expectation. Do you accept it and seek to put that into your life? Or do you just say, man, that's going to be hard. Giving a portion of my income or having a daily prayer time or spending time in the Word or making my faith public. That's not easy. I'm this way or I'm that way. Or I, I can't forgive that person. Or I can't give up this habit of what I look at. 
Guys, do we just discard the hard things or do we say, you are the Lord. You're going to have to help me do this. But Lord, I'm putting my whole life, my whole body on an altar. You use it however you see fit. Is there a specific command of Scripture that you've just are disobeying? Can I ask you, why would you do that when Jesus is the Lord? So, Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, I pray that we'll have the right perspective on the teaching of Jesus. He did not lay down an easy discipleship. And, Lord, it is easy when we follow close to you and when we rely upon you. But, Lord, we live so often close to the culture and we think humanly, God, and we we think rationally and logically, and that's when we get in trouble. So, Lord, thank you for the example that's coming up and those that are just going to sell out completely. May we follow them. Lord, I don't know which of these three interpretations But we know the conclusion is the same. You are calling for a complete, total surrender of unconditional discipleship. May we give that to you, even today. Lord, as we study your word and as you bring out new things and new revelations to us, may we honestly implement those into our lives. God, would you even right now, just whoever's still watching out there, Lord, would you impress upon us any specific area that we have not yet surrendered, that we need to, and let you be the Lord over that. You are the Lord. And God, remind us we're going to be thankful that we live the worthy life and not just the comfortable, selfish life like the crowd. May we not just be part of the crowd or even just part of the disciples. May we be the close, committed, fully dedicated followers of Christ that you want us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, uh, so that's today. Uh, I want to take just a moment. I know I've alluded to this um, on an email and on our website, the email that we had go out Friday that I had a video on there. If you go on that link of that video, you say, Jeff, I want to give. I need to give. Uh, We didn't have an offering received today. I had a man bring by an offering, his offering, in an envelope to my house yesterday, and I'll be putting that in tomorrow. If you want to mail your offering and tithes, uh, 120 Centerville, Road, Anderson, South Carolina, then feel free to do that. We will receive it this week. But also, you can go on the website if if you want to do that and use that format, and you can give through that as well. And so, uh, if the Lord's blessed you with that, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Another exhortation is this. If we here in the church office this week, um, particularly those of you that are at high risk, or if you're showing symptoms and you're like, I just can't get out of the house, I need to be staying in according to what the health experts are saying, give us a call at the office, and if we can make a grocery pickup, uh, you are often able to call in, and they'll have orders ready. If we need to pick that up and run it to your house, uh, we have some folks that have offered to do that, and even we as a staff could help pull that off this, in the coming weeks, and we want to be a help to you. Um, I hope you'll be praying for us. We need the Lord's guidance in the weeks ahead. And be looking, uh, as I said Friday, any messages, uh, whether it be from Mike to the young people. Uh, parents, ask your young person, did you watch a video sent from Pastor Mike or the children? Kids, did you watch a video sent from Pastor Brandon? Or if I send something or Deanna to the ladies or to the church, we're going to try not to oversaturate you. But if you sent something like that, please take a moment to view that. And then finally, let me just say, hey, we love you. Uh, God is sovereign. Everything is on schedule. 
And we love you, and we're already looking forward to next week, uh, joining back with you in the same time, 1030 next Sunday. You guys have a great week.